Scripture reading for this morning is Isaiah chapter 35. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The year was 1976. I was seven, and my mom and dad who are here, I've confirmed that this story is just as uh, interesting as I'm going to describe it. (laughs) My mom, we lived in Michigan. My mom and dad uh, threw my brother and I in the back of his 1969 Chevy pickup and said, we're going to Texas for a vacation. Now, to be fair, there was a cap on the back of the truck, um, and we did have sleeping bags back there. Uh, and there was a little dividing, you know, window that could open between the cab of the truck and where my brother and I were, were hanging out for quite a while. And about 30 minutes into the drive, 30 minutes, a little bit less actually, um, I knocked on that window and asked them to open it up. And I asked that question that every child asks on a road trip, which is... Are we there yet? Nowhere near it. (laughs) Are we there yet? It's the question kids ask on road trips. By the time we hit young adulthood, the are we there yet question takes a little bit of a different turn, right? It gets asked in different contexts. Are we there yet becomes, will I ever finish grad school? Or will I ever get married Will I ever get a job that pays enough for me to do more than just get by? Or will I ever be able to retire? But at some point, life gets unexpectedly and unimaginably hard. You lose people you love. You get sick. You get tired. And along the way, and especially near the end, You ask the question, are we there yet? Now, when kids ask that question on a long trip, the last thing you want to do is get them even more excited about getting there, right? 
If I had said to my mom and dad, are we there yet? And if they had said, not even close, but it's going to be awesome when we get there. I can hardly wait. I, that would not have calmed me down. And, you know, it, maybe it would for your kids. Maybe it did when your kids were little. We didn't take that approach, Wendy and I, when, we were, when our kids were young. We, we, would, we lived in St. Louis. We would drive to Michigan to visit our family. And we had a, a, a suburban. It had a DVD player with one of those you know, consoles so that the kids could watch. And they watched a lot of Veggie Tales on these trips back to Michigan. And so when they asked, are we there yet? We would give them a time estimate in number of Veggie Tales <laughs> remaining until we get there. Six more Veggie Tales and we'll be there. When you're older though, and you ask that question, the Bible actually does seek to get us excited about the destination. It acknowledges the reality of our situation, that life is hard, that it gets harder, and it gets hard for everyone at the end. But it also seeks to engender hope by get us, getting us excited about the destination, about where we are going. And Isaiah 35 is just such a, a passage from Scripture. When you read Romans chapter 8, you know, the end of Romans chapter 8, you know, that, just that high point, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, right? This, Isaiah 35 is the Old Testament version of Romans 8. It is meant to get us excited, and in this case, about the destination. Isaiah 35 is where the Bible, in the Bible, where God answers the are we there yet question in a way that is meant to quiet our hearts and stir up our hope. So there's three questions that I want us to ask together of Isaiah chapter 35 in order to better understand it and by God's grace have it impact the way in which we think about our lives in anticipation of what is coming. So three questions. The first question I want us to consider together is who's asking the question? Who is it in Isaiah chapter 35 who is asking the are we there yet Question. The second question I want us to ask is, what do we learn about where they're headed? What does Isaiah 35 tell us about the destination? And then third, I want us to ask together, what will keep them going? So who's asking the question? What do we learn about the destination? And then what will keep them going? But first, let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we're thankful for this portion of your word. We're thankful, Lord, for the way in which you speak to us and give us hope as you point us toward the destination. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so who's asking the question? And it depends on who they are. So take a look at verse uh, 2. And if you uh, don't have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to, to grab one in front of you. If you have a bulletin, the page number is in the bulletin. Um, I have a bulletin. The page number is page 595. So it'll be easier to follow along with uh, what I'm pointing to here in the passage, if you have a Bible open in front of you. So Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah references this group of people that he just identifies as they. So look at, let's look at the top of the chapter. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, and it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our gods. Who are they? That's the, the first question 
that we need to ask in order to identify what's going on here. Then in verse 3 and the first part of verse 4, we learn a little bit more about who these people are. Their hands are weak, their knees are shaking, their hearts are anxious, they're called to be strong and fear not. You jump down to verse 5, their eyes are blind, their ears are deaf, they're lame and they're not able to walk, they're, they're mute, they can't sing for joy. We're starting to get an idea of who these people are to whom Isaiah is writing. Now, that's text, let's step back and, and think about the context a little bit, and specifically the historical context. Isaiah, the prophet, wrote about 100 years before Judah fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. He told them, now again, this is 100 years before this event took place. He told them, Judah's going to fall. You're going to be sent off into exile. You're going to cry out to God from that place in desperation, and God will hear you, and he will deliver you. He's telling, telling them ahead of time what is going to happen. But Isaiah prophesied about things greater than he realized. They, all of his prophecies included events that would take place in Judah, in Israel, but they pointed beyond that as well to things that would ultimately come with the incarnation and the birth of Christ, and even beyond that to his return. Theologians uh, speak of this using a, an image of a mountain range. In 1995, uh, Wendy and I and our then two daughters, uh, three and one, I think, um, moved to Montana, Missoula, Montana from Toledo, Ohio, which is 54 veggie tales, in case you're <laughs> curious. Long trip. As we approached the Continental Divide, you know, it kind of looked like a jagged line on the horizon. But... If you've been through a mountain range, you know as you get up to it and then get into it, you realize there's depth here. This isn't just, you know, two-dimensional. And that's how prophecy works in the Old Testament. There's depth to the prophet's words. There's that initial front edge of the mountain range, which in the case of, um, you know, Israel and Judah looked like a return to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being restored but there is, you know, maybe, I'm not going to say halfway, but don't think of this in terms of chronology and time. But, but partway through, there's the incarnation of Christ. And then the end of the mountain range is the return of Christ. So we learn then, and we get a clue actually in Isaiah 35 that that's what's happening when you get to the end. And we get an even more clear picture of who they are. So end of verse 9 the redeemed shall walk there. First line of verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. They are ultimately the followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19, quoting Isaiah chapter 61, says this. Here's what happens. He came to Nazareth, Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, all of that ultimately pointed to me. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, I came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It's the ransomed of the Lord to whom Isaiah, of whom Isaiah is referring in Isaiah chapter 35. So now let's go back and look at Isaiah 35. Let me ask you, do you see yourself in their experience? Do you see yourself in the experience that Isaiah said these people would have in exile? So look again with me at at verse 3. Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands. Hands have to do with the realm of action, with the realm of doing. To need to have your hands strengthened points to this sense of uncertainty. I don't know what to do. What is it in which you find yourself not knowing not only what to do or even what to think? What decisions are looming in front of you? Are your hands weak? Looking down at the second line in verse 3, make firm the feeble knees. That speaks to instability. Knees are the realm of stability, right? If your knees are weak, you're not stable in your standing, your ability to stand. Where are you experiencing instability in your life? You're you know, COVID, right? We're dealing with that. Maybe you, people you know and love have had COVID. They're dealing with long COVID. And there's a lot of instability in their life. What will the future hold for me? Perhaps you are experiencing an economic impact, severe one as a result of the pandemic. And there's a sense of instability for you as well. First line of verse four, say to those who have an anxious heart, Anxiety, what outcome can't you control? I mean, just think about things that are going on in your life right now. What are the outcomes in your life that you cannot control? Let me ask you another question. What outcomes can you control? Are you anxious? Are you feeling broken down by this barren world? Look back up at verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land. Wilderness in the Old Testament is a way of talking about that which is dangerous, unknown. Dry land, you know, desert, barren places. Verse 7, look down at verse 7. The first line says, The burning sand shall become a pool. Burning sand and Thirsty ground, second line, the thirsty ground will become springs of water. This is speaking of that which is never satisfied, which is never quenched. Into what are you pouring your life right now, and it never seems to be enough? Verse 7, end of verse 7, speaks of the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. Jackals were wild beasts that were you know, akin to dogs or wolves. They inhabited barren places. They had a, a piercing, unnerving cry. Where is it that you find yourself feeling as though, man, that's all I experience, is that kind of threat in my life? The bottom line, if you are a child of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, and if your experience in life is normal, which means painful at some point, and certainly at the end, then everything that Isaiah Isaiah 35 says about where we're headed applies to you as you make your way. So this is for us. Isaiah 35 is for every one of God's children who asks, are we there yet? 
Which means our second point is not what do they learn about the destination, but what do we learn about the destination? What do we learn about the destination? First thing is this. Look at verse 10. It has a name. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Zion is the dwelling place of God. It's where God dwells with his people. It's the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which in the end is here, not someplace out there. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The dwelling place of God in the end will not be a place. The place where we dwell with God will not be a place out there in the end. It will be here. And Isaiah 35 tells us that as well. What will Zion be like? What will life be like in the end here? Take a look at verse 1 again with me. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Sharon was just considered to be a beautiful place. Carmel was considered to be a place that was well cultivated. Lebanon was considered to be a place that was verdant and able to produce much uh, fruit and um, you know other things. This is a picture of the renewed earth. This is a picture of all things being made new in the end. You see it in verse 6 as well. Third line of verse 6, the water's shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. It's this picture of a renewed, restored, vital earth. What will Zion be like? It will be a renewed earth. All wrongs will be made right. You see that in verse 4. Third line, beginning there, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Every wrong that was done to God's people will be made right. Every injustice will be judged. The vengeance that we are to leave to God and not take into our own hands, God will achieve. All wrongs will be made right. Our bodies will be resurrected. Look at verse 5. Again, this picture, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It's, it's an Old Testament image of the resurrection of the body. Renewed earth, all wrongs made right, everything that's crooked made straight, and bodies that are renewed. No wonder that Isaiah speaks of never-ending joy in verse 10. They shall obtain gladness and joy, last line of verse 10, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What a great picture. 
Sorrow and sighing, gone. We are out of here. Never to return because they've been replaced with gladness and joy. I love the way Dane Ortland puts it. This is a little bit longer quote, but I want to read it. This is uh, from the ESV Men's Devotional Bible, I believe. He writes this. Here's what God is saying to us through this text. If you are in Christ, one day you will find yourself on this earth Minus sin and disease and hospitals and medicine and alarm clocks and apologies and tears and resentment and dashed hopes and relational friction and unexplainable sadness and shame and boredom and mustered up happiness. And you'll find yourself in a transformed but fully physical body, unable to sin, at rest, feeling better physically than you ever could, even in your earthly prime, enjoying this earth as it was meant to be enjoyed and shot through everything and over everything and giving meaning to everything, the everlasting joy in God that we were created for. Listen, if your understanding of the end for the Christian, really when you think about it, boils down to we're somewhere on a cloud playing a harp, you've not understood the Bible's teaching about the end. The Bible's teaching about the end is not us going to be with God in some ethereal place, but God coming back to us. It's Eden on steroids. It's God dwelling with his people on a renewed earth. And that leads to the best thing about this renewed earth. As great as everything I just described is and will be, the best thing is that we will be beholding the glory of the Lord. And Isaiah tells us that in verse 2. Last two lines of verse 2. They, that's us, shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. As great as everything else about heaven, by heaven, I mean, heaven is a place on earth, guys. By heaven, I mean the renewed earth. The best thing about what is coming is the fact that we will be with Jesus. We will see his glory. We had a great conversation about this around the dinner table yesterday. What will heaven be like? What will it mean to know God? And I use the illustration that Jonathan Edwards and others have used, which is if you can picture um, the, the love of God and the knowledge of God, the reality of who God is as an ocean, and if you can picture your heart as a thimble, I used the word thimble, and my kids said, what is a thimble? I said, think communion cup, right? If you picture our hearts, our capacity to know God as a communion cup, then in heaven, the communion cup will be full of the knowledge of God. We won't contain all of God. God is the vast ocean. But the life of heaven on this renewed earth will be, if you will, the communion cup ever growing and getting bigger in its capacity, its ability to contain more of the knowledge of the love of God. We'll never contain the entire ocean, but we will always be filled up with the knowledge of God and ever expanding. And that, I mean, will be awesome doesn't do justice to it. It'll be awesome in the truest sense of awesome. Until that day, we journey. So third, what will keep us going? What will keep us going? Because Isaiah tells us we will not get there on our own. Look at verse 3 again. 
Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those with an anxious heart, be strong. We're weak. <laughs> our hands are weak, our knees are weak, we're unsteady, our hearts are anxious. Listen, the, the next time you come across a book in the Christian bookstore that says 10 steps to running in the way of holiness, I'm not saying don't read it, but read it very critically. Because it may be that that author has not considered things like our weakness and our complete inability apart from God's help to make it anywhere. But we're not alone. Isaiah prophesies about two highways. In Isaiah 35, he prophesies about this highway that is leading from us to Zion. So look at verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. So Isaiah prophesies about a highway, chapter 35, from God's people to Zion. But in Isaiah chapter 40, he talks about another highway. And this is the highway from Zion to where we are. And this is what we just celebrated at Christmas. Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah writes this in verses 3 through 5. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, which is just a way of using um, you know, a, a landscape imagery to point out that nothing will hinder the coming of the Lord to his people. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now then, this again, partial fulfillment in the coming of Christ, final fulfillment with his return. Because in John chapter 1, verse 23, I'm going to read a few verses right before that. This is going to sound, Isaiah 40 that I just read, you're going to hear it again, right here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And then jumping down to verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him then, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to them, who are you? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. <laughs> John is saying, the one of whom Isaiah said was coming, I'm now announcing. Isaiah was referring to me, John was saying. I'm the one making that announcement. Jesus is the one who is coming on this highway from Zion, on this way from God to his people, which was the incarnation, the birth of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus would later say in John 14, 6, I am the way. I'm the highway. I'm the way to God. No man gets to the Father except by me. Jesus is the one who will lead us home. And Isaiah wrote of that as well. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 16, 
I hope one of the things you take away from this sermon is that there's not just this hard, you know, dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is one story and a glorious one at that. Isaiah chapter 42, verse, verse 16, Isaiah ultimately pointing to Christ, and I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. In other words, the question to ask is not what will get us there. It's who. And we know who. It's Jesus. He will not keep us from falling. Even though we're fools. I I love this entire chapter. It's hard to pick out a favorite line. But a top candidate would be in chapter uh, 35, verse 8, Last line of verse 8, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Whew. That's how I felt when I read that line. Good news. Jesus will not let you go. What is all this, all this meant to do in us? It is meant to engender hope. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Father Christmas meets three of the Pavenzi children and provides them with the items that were necessary for them to carry out their calling as kings and queens of Narnia. A sword for Peter, a bow and arrows for Susan, and a bottle of healing cordial for Lucy. A few drops of her cordial could cure almost anything and even bring people back from the brink of death so that they could keep on going. The great Old Testament scholar, Alec Matir said, hope is the cordial of the people of God that we need to keep us going. Our hope is found in the gospel. For now, the desert remains and the valleys are deep and the mountains are high, but the way is clear. And even though we are fools, we will not fall from it. Because Christ is with us by his spirit to comfort us, to lead us, to hold us fast, and he will not let us go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that on this journey that feels so long, you are with us by your spirit all the way. Father, when we feel as though we will never get there, Help us to remember that in your Son, you have come to us, and you will come yet again. Lord, help us to remember that in a very real way, we are not traveling to Zion, but Zion is coming to us. Lord, would you enlarge our vision to the full breadth and height and depth of what Scripture would give us concerning life with you forever? And let that cheer our hearts, be the cordial that we need to keep us going. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.